0: Hi, this is Jim Lebedo. I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You are listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. Our started BizTalk so you would have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue. And we provide onboarding programs that get them up to speed doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That is why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today, we have Harry Esten, Jr., author of the book, The Demographic Cliff, How to Survive and Prosper During the Great Deflation of 2014 to 2019. And also, he is the editor of the free newsletter, Economy and Markets. Mr. Dent is the founder of Dent Research, an economic forecasting firm specializing in demographic trends. Mr. Dent accurately forecasts the unanticipated boom in the 1990s and the continued expansion into 2007 in his best-selling book, The Great Boom Ahead, published in 1992. As a highly sought-after public speaker, he has spoken to executives and investors around the world. In his new book, The Demographic Cliff, he continues to educate audiences about his predictions for the next Great Depression between 2014 and 2019, an event he's been forecasting for 20 years. Harry, welcome back to the program. Oh, nice to be back. Okay. I'm excited having you back because some of the things we've had on the previous programs, we've gotten feedback for audience. They really appreciate your insights especially in how to run their businesses and protect their personal investments. The book we're going to talk about is The Demographic Cliff, published January 2014. Well, Harry, it's one year later, and so I have to ask the question, since it's a year later, what have you gotten right and what have you gotten wrong? Well, what
1: we've got- right is we were warning of a number of things. One is that uh, commodity prices would continue to fall. They had peaked back in 2008. Gold and silver would continue to fall, oil, commodities in general, and that would continue to hurt emerging countries. And so emerging markets are like 25% below their highs now and underperforming and continue to. Oil has now crashed following gold. So that we got dead on more than anybody. We've been saying the dollar would keep going up and would be the safe haven. And of course it has. And that's another reason commodity is weak. We said Europe would continue to be weak. And we're talking about deflation ahead. Europe is right on the verge of deflation, although the United States is not yet. And so it goes back to what have we gotten wrong? In that book, we would have expected by mid-2014 that this stock bubble would have peaked and be heading down, and obviously it has not. And the U.S., economy has stayed buoyant and gotten a little better, and we're not dealing with deflationary trends yet. So that's what we're still looking at happening. And, you know, in my newsletters and stuff, we just have, in the short term, we know this is a bubble. And I'll go to my grave saying this is a bubble, and it is going to burst. But, you know, bubbles go and go and go and go, and each one goes greater than the last one. And I yet still don't think this bubble has peaked. We're now looking at probably mid to late March as a more likely time. I don't think that there's a lot of upside after this strong rally we had out in October. We're probably going to more edge up, get a little more volatile. But, you know, we're seeing signs. In the short term, it has nothing to do with demographics and the other things with the fundamentals we study long term. It just has to do, with, you know, when the smart money decides it's over, you know, technical trends, support and resistance levels. And at this point, I think the market's got maybe 4 more on the upside in the next couple months. But if we do see that, then I'm going to be giving stronger warnings. But I'm not saying, oh, man, you've got to be out of the stock market now at this point. But a couple months from now, we're likely to say that. And the big trigger we see, Jim, is you know the last time it was the, the big theme of the last crash. And nobody saw it coming, including the Fed and most economists, because they didn't see like a super overvalued market like in 2000. It was the real estate bubble and the subprime mortgages and securities that triggered that whole downturn. Well, this time, it's the cracking bubble and the whole oil bubble here and natural gas bubble and the high yield bond market which funded that at unprecedented low junk bond rates of 5% junk bonds at 5% is absolute insanity and in good times they should be 8 to 10 because of the high risk. So I think that, you know, this falling oil prices is what I'm going to most focus on. I think oil's probably gone nearly as low as it's going to go after this last crash. I think it's going to bounce maybe for a few months. I think stocks will probably rally with that. But if oil turns around and crashes to new lows, kind of the Thirty to forty range, which I think is going to happen in the next several months. That's one of our big forecasts for 2015. Then investors are going to realize fracking is totally over, and junk bonds are going to start to default because these frackers and energy companies are about fifteen to twenty percent of the high yield bond market. That's a huge percentage, and all it takes is a trigger. And something to go wrong, and then investors get back to reality because investors are in la-la land. They think the Fed will never let the economy go down again. There's no downside. Economy's getting better. There's little risk, and something goes wrong, and all of a sudden, things change.
0: Okay, just so we're on the same page here, the bubble you're talking about is the stock market bubble, correct? Correct. Yeah, but, but, you know,
1: we've had a bubble in everything. And and what we've been saying for a number of years now, we've had bubble after bubble, three stock bubbles now, you know, and and we've had a commodity bubble that crash and a real estate bubble that crash and it's starting to bounce back. This stock bubble to me is the last bubble. When this blows, I think it's going to show that stimulus is not enough to get you a sustained recovery when the debt demographic trends are so fundamentally bad. You know, the Fed's going to lose credibility. Investors are going to say, oh, my gosh, that much stimulus and we're back, on the floor again, something's wrong here. And I think it's the last bubble. And I think commodities keep going down. Real estate has a second crash. Stocks have a crash. And we don't get back to new highs in real estate. We don't get back to new highs in stocks or commodities for decades.
0: You know, we're far enough away from 2008, and there's been enough press on the subprime in housing bubble. You can get your head around that, right? That makes sense. We understand it. But you're talking about junk bonds and fracking.
1: I left out Jim. Of these emerging markets we've been saying would underperform. There is 5.7 trillion dollars in U.S. bonds and U.S. lending, in U.S. dollars to emerging country companies, especially in these higher yield bonds and stuff. So it's not just the half a trillion in leveraged debt and high yield bonds in the fracking sector alone. It's this 5.7 trillion that keeps getting hurt by falling commodity prices. And, you know, the Fed stimulus may be able to keep our jobs and our economy going some, but it's not stopping this commodity slide. It can't do anything about that. It's oversupply with slowing demand around the world. And these frackers and oil companies and stuff, they may be unprofitable at these low oil prices now that nobody expected except for us. But their variable costs are such that the existing wells will continue to run for a while, three, six, nine, twelve, sixteen 12, 16 months in different places until they run out, and then they're shut down.
0: So I'm sitting here today as a private investor. What are you suggesting I do with my investment funds?
1: Well, you know, right now, the degree you have stocks, I think you can – hold on to them unless we break a critical level like 1800 on the S&P 500. But here's my preferred scenario. I mean, and there's a number of them, but if we do see oil finally start to bounce from something like 49 50 bucks 50 here pretty soon, and, and stocks have another rally to new highs and that sort of thing over the next couple of months, and especially if oil gets back into kind of like the mid-60s to mid-70s dollars in range, and then starts to turn down again, my chart and everything we look at say there's no support below here in oil until you get to around 32 to 36 bucks or something. And we're going to see a Another big slide in oil in the next several months. So if oil starts turning back down again, I think that's going to trigger the next high-yield bond crash, which we've seen recently, and the next deeper stock crash. So I would be say, okay, there's going to come a time, especially if we see a rally into, say, mid to late March, where you're going to have to prune or get out of your stocks and your commodities and real estate trusts and stuff, your risk-on assets, as they call it. And you want to be increasingly into risk-off. You want to be into near cash, treasury bonds, shorter-term T-bills, that sort of thing, shorter-term bonds, and say, look, I'm going to protect my money. And what I would tell an investor, especially if we see another rally next month, the time we see the greatest danger next year is between, like, late March and late September. If nothing else, be safe there. And if we're wrong, oh, you might miss 5% stocks and risk on assets but we're right we could have the first leg of the next major crash which is likely to last off and on into i don't know late 2016 early 2017
0: maybe for our audience harry has been a guest a couple times you can go out to the website biztalkradioshow.com that's b-i-z talkradioshow.com and listen to the previous programs harry i've been following your work for some time actually decades but for our audience who may be new to your work you're predicting these economic downturns based on demographic trends so just give our audience who may not be familiar with your work just an overview of your thoughts behind that and why it's causing these economic downturns
1: demographics and aging affects everything. I mean, uh, how tall we are, how much we weigh. I mean, when we eat the most calories, when we spend the most money, borrow the most money, invest the most money, when we innovate, I mean, uh, inflation even. But the single trend that is the most important to the economy in developed countries like the U.S. or Germany or Australia or Japan. It's just a simple generational spending cycle. A new generation enters the workforce. The baby boomers did that in peak in the late 70s, early 80s. That's when the boom started. And they get married and have kids and buy houses and cars and spend money and food and, you know, you name it. You know, between age 20 and 46, the peak in spending for the average family is 46. For the most affluent families, it's more like age 51 to 53. So even different sectors. But We have a simple indicator called the generational spending wave, and it's just a 46-year lag on the birth index, and we adjust for immigrants. And it would have told you decades ago When we predicted it, there'd be a boom from 1983, approximately, to 2007. The baby boomers would peak overall, and the economy would start to slow. Now, what happened is we did have a big correction in the whole subprime crisis and debt crisis around the world. wasn't just in the U.S., but then government said, well, we're not going to allow it this time. We're just going to print trillions and trillions. We count about $14 trillion. If you look at all the central banks around the world, about $14 trillion, almost the size of the U.S. economy has been printed to offset this demographic slide and this debt buildup in what would normally be, after a debt bubble, deleveraging. It's another thing we cover in the book. We look at debt bubbles and financial asset bubbles throughout history, and they're very clear. Debt goes up, that leverages assets, and then at some point you get bubbles and they have to burst. The debt has to be deleveraged and written off and come back then, and financial assets have to come from high valuations to low. And this is all good for the economy long-term. Lower home prices lower stock prices, lower cost of living, less debt and interest is only good. The last debt deleveraging we had and financial asset bubble burst before these ones were in the early 30s after the roaring 20s bubble and debt boom. So, I mean, we look at many things, but that's the two big things we look at, demographics and debt. And after you have a demographic and debt bubble boom, you're always going to see in history deleveraging, which means deflation in prices, not inflation. A lot of the people that have a similar message to me like Peter Schiff and many others will say oh we got this debt bubble now we're printing money and we're gonna have a hyperinflation blowout not going to happen hasn't happened we've been more right about that than anything else that commodity prices keep going down we keep bumping up against deflation no matter how much more money we print we're still on the verge of deflation and we're not seeing inflation so we call it the winter season You know, it's like when temperatures freeze, that's like deflation. When you have temperatures too hot, like in the 70s, that's inflation. There's a natural cycle in that, and we are in this winter season. So investors have to think downturn, deleveraging, deflation. How do I set my portfolio and my business strategies for that scenario, not for a scenario like the 70s where we had recessions and inflation? This is depression and deflation, very different.
0: Thanks for listening in on the conversation. Our guest is Harry Dent. We're talking about his book, The Demographic Cliff, How to Survive and Prosper During the Great Deflation of 2014 to 2019. In addition to Harry sharing his wisdom, you can find other experts that have shared their expertise with us here on BizTalk. Those are available as podcasts on our website and cover business topics in areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales and sales management, and, of course, personal development. You can download those podcasts from our website at biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-C, talkradioshow.com. Okay, Harry, you've been talking about the trends, particularly the deflationary trend, and is there anything we can do to help stop that trend?
1: Central banks are doing everything they can do. They have stopped this. We would have already seen a deflation and a depression and a meltdown and a financial restructuring in Japan way back in the 90s and in the U.S. and Europe. But central banks just keep saying, we're going to print, print, print. Well, you can do that, but it's like taking more of a drug to keep coming down from a high. I mean, if you keep taking more and more of a drug, at some point, you're going to get so unhealthy, so imbalanced that you're going to die from the drug and not from the original condition. So you can only do it so long. I think that's why I'm looking for a trigger. I mean, it's obvious now. Central banks will just keep printing money. They're not going to have a depression on their watch, and they don't want the economy to fail because the slightest weakness, and it will fail like in 2008 and fail rapidly. I'm looking for a trigger like this fracking and high-yield bond prices to start triggering. Again, the fracking companies go first. Next thing you know, emerging companies, market companies start defaulting on their debt to the U.S. And you've got to remember, not only are their business is failing because they're major commodity exporters, but the U.S. dollar keeps going up, and these loans have to be paid back in the interest in U.S. dollars, so it gets more expensive. And then the more you see these debt defaults, the more bondholders and banks, you know, get in trouble and get you know tighter and tighter, and, and interest rates go up, and you have a problem. So. I'm looking for a trigger, because it's not going to come from government. Governments aren't going to stop fighting this, and governments are fighting it. They've never done this before. They've always lowered interest rates. They've always done some fiscal deficits and built some dams and infrastructures. They've never printed unlimited amounts of money to offset the demographic decline, the deleveraging. And the downturn. They're just basically filling an economic hole with free money. Now, anybody thinks that's a credible solution, then they should be shot and put out of their misery. And that's what most economists think. I hate to say it.
0: Well, Harry, when you put it that way, it sounds like you're headed for a major correction then.
1: Yes, I see... One of the patterns we've been talking about over the last few years and in the book, it's called a megaphone pattern where you see bubbles that have higher highs each time. But every time you have a crash and correction, since you're getting in worse condition from all this, stimulus, you have lower lows. The last low was 6442 on the Dow. The next one projects out to be about somewhere between 5,500 and 6,000, depending on when it hits. So we're coming from higher levels. I think the Dow is going to go to 19,000 likely, maybe be maybe twenty if it blows off. And then it's gonna go down to, you know, five and a half, six thousand. That's gonna be a seventy percent crash next time. So the next crash and it'll probably take two years plus or minus to work out is going to be worse than two thousand eight and nine. And again, the worst part about it, unlike the seventies and other crashes we've had, there's nowhere to hide. In a deflationary, bubble bursting depression like environment like the thirties, everything goes down except the highest quality bonds And cash, and the U.S. dollar in this case. The U.S. dollar goes up like it did in the 2008 crisis. Everything else, real estate, commodities, gold, silver, large-cap stocks, small-cap stocks, emerging country stocks, European stocks. I mean, everything went down in 2008. So when your stockbroker says, hey, don't worry, stocks always bounce back, and we got you diversified, that isn't going to help. Because if I'm right, and this is the last bubble for a while, in 1929, stocks didn't get back to those levels until 1953. When they peaked in 1968, they didn't get back to those levels until 1993. We're talking 24, 25 years. So stocks aren't going to come back to new highs for a long time. Real estate's not going to come back to new highs, I don't think, ever because real estate is so demographically unfavored in an aging population that investors got to protect themselves. And you got to think deflation. How do I get out of risk on assets? I mean, the first thing is don't look the gift horse in the mouth. We've had the greatest bubble in housing, commodities, stock, all risk on assets in all of history and globally. So protect your gains. See how this thing shakes out, because I can't predict it exactly, especially in a government-stimulus-driven world where the governments have taken over markets, taken over the bond market, issue higher debt, and then buy their own bonds? I mean, have you ever seen that happen before? This is crazy but see how this shakes out and then we do get back down to normal levels you know like you know we have a 60 70 80 stock crash. then you can start buying long term again and then when real estate gets back to pre-bubble levels and that's just january 2000 by my model that's when the bubble started that's when the subprime lending and the mortgage security started and all that crazy stuff that created a bubble in housing well once bubbles peak 95% of the time in history, they go back to where the bubble started or lower. I have tracked that. I've looked at every major bubble in history. We're not there yet in housing. People think, oh, we've definitely seen a bottom in housing. No, we have not. Housing would have to fall 40% from here on average, and of course, much higher in some areas, lower than others, because there's different bubbles, but just to get back to January 2000, not to race all the gains since World War II, just to get back. To where the bubble started in January of two thousand. So housing is not safe either.
0: Let's talk about that for a second because most people have their largest investment in their homes. Yeah. So will not immigration offset some of the downtrends in demographics? Where I'm going with that, if we allow more immigration, then they're gonna need some place to live. So is yeah, it their counterbalance to
1: Congress? That? And we've got a country that's increasingly anti-immigration. Where are we going to get this allowing more immigration from? Immigration has dropped more than gone up in recent years. In fact, a couple of years ago, more Mexicans were leaving than coming in. So I don't see that happen. And downturns of countries are almost never pro-immigration. They'll tolerate them in booms because they take jobs we don't want. But when things go down, then it's like, no, we don't want to lose any jobs. So I am not looking for a rebound. I'm looking for immigration to drop. In fact, we have that in the book towards the end. We have our own projections of births and immigration, which are very different from the straight line you know, forecast of the government. You know, And it says immigration's going to drop in the next decade, and so are births. So we're not going to have that favorable demographics. And housing already is approaching the point of In coming years, where more old people will be dying and be sellers of real estate than young people who'll be buying, just like Japan's already seen that. And Japan today, what gave me that insight is Japan has more adult diaper sales than baby diaper sales starting a few years ago. So, this is for real estate, that's unlike any other industry, real estate lasts forever. So, you can't just look at the buyers like we do for cars or things like that or appliances or any other sector of the economy. You have to look at who are going to become sellers when they die.
0: Okay. Affecting your demographic trends could be the biotechnology as it relates to medicine. Don't we have a chance of just living a lot longer? And if we're living a lot longer, don't we sustain economy a little bit longer?
1: I think that's going to happen. The last technology revolution we had, we saw lifespans. Now, this was on a lag, though, grow faster from the 30s through the 60s. Now they've slowed down again. Our life expectancy is only going up about a year, year and a half every decade. It's still slowing. There is a point, I think, starting in the next decade where it'll start to accelerate again. But this is a long term impact. It takes a long time for this to impact. But I do think that our life expectancy is going to start rising a lot faster in the coming decades. It's just That's just not going to affect the economy for a long time. And older people don't have the same impact. Even if they live longer, they still spend much less, and they don't buy all the durable goods that young families buy, housing, cars, and all these big things that we finance and leverage. So, yes, that will be a positive. People will stay in the workforce longer. We are predicting in the book that over the coming decades we're going to have to retire at 75 instead of 60 because our life expectancies have gone up and we haven't adjusted for that, and they will go up more in the future. We're going to have to deal with life expectancy. It's a good thing to live longer, but not if you say, well, we still retire at 62 to 65, and now we just have people on the dole for two decades instead of one, and next thing you know it will be three decades. How do you support people for two to three decades with full health care and Social Security? You can't do it is the answer. We will not be able to do it. So we're going to have to make that adjustment, and, of course, it's not going to happen voluntarily. Nobody would vote for a politician that says, well, first thing I'm going to do when I get in office is raise the retirement age and health care and Social Security benefit to 75 over the next 10 years. That person would not have a shot of getting elected. You have a crisis. Everybody realizes we're bankrupt like a lot of unions do when they bankrupt their industries. And next thing you know, you're accepting half your health care benefits and then retirement benefits voluntarily because you know there's no way you're going to get it otherwise.
0: Our guest is Harry Dent. We're talking about his book, The Demographic Cliff, How to Survive and Prosper During the Great Deflation of 2014 to 2019. Harry, you talk about in your book how the consumers really never came out of the last recession. And you hear politicians talk about income inequality. How do those two things factor into what we're talking about?
1: i 'm doing one of my major newsletters on that right now, and it is unbelievable if you look at the data. People talk about it 's all going to the top one percent or ten percent. If you look at the top ten percent, most of the gains in the recent decades have come from the one percent out of that ten percent just ten percent of those wealthy people. You look at the one percent you say oh they're really doing it no actually, the ten percent down to the you know the ninety percent of those people aren't making that much gain it's all coming in the, you know the one tenth of a percent and, and Every time you, look, oh, the one-tenth of a percent, most of it's coming from the 0.01, 10 percent. Our income inequality is as extreme as it was in 1929, and this time it skewed even more to the top 0.01, the top 0.1 percent. So this is always a sign of a major long-term top. You can't have an economy that keeps giving more to the generals and nothing to the troops. Sooner or later, there's no troops. The troops are starving. The troops are sick. The troops don't have any money. Money to spend, and the bottom 40% of people in our economy have no wealth and don't own a home. You know, so this income inequality is one of those classic signs, like in 1929, that we don't just have a demographic top. We don't just have an overvalued stock market. This is a major shift. We've had a big technology boom. We've, you know, the rich get richer because the people who take the risk and entrepreneurship and finance and stuff make the most money. And that's all good up to a point, but not when it gets to this extreme. The rich are going to lose their assets, is what I'm saying. I, I'm worried about Homer Simpson. Yeah, there's going to be more jobs losses, more homes underwater, but I'm right about a downturn. But that reset is going to favor the everyday person again, and it's going to heavily, heavily disfavor. These inequality trends also show in history, yes, the top 10, 1% and 0.1% make the most gains in a bubble boom like this, but when that bubble burst for decades to come, like three to four decades, they lose their wealth way faster and their income advantage way faster than the average person. So I think the economy is going to reset this inequality. Of course, governments are going to do things. But if the government did nothing, the economy would reset. And all of a sudden, these billionaires will be selling their yachts. And the 100 millionaires will be selling their jets. you know, And then the millionaires will be selling their Ferraris because they're not going to be able to afford them when this bubble bursts. They're the big losers because they own all the financial assets.
0: Okay. On a side note. The impact, I call it one of the echo effects of this last Great Recession, was people going back to school to get educated and going in debt to do that. Students racking up all kinds of debt and not getting the jobs they would traditionally get in terms of the income levels coming out of college. But we're carrying forward this large school loan debt. What's the impact of that going to be?
1: Another thing that's different from the last bubble, last bubble again, real estate debt, overall debt, subprime debt was the big thing. You know, the subprime debt has been largely worked off. Now we have this 5.7 trillion of emerging market debt, way more than we had in 2007 and 8. We have this student loan debt at a trillion, very fragile, and we didn't hardly have any back then, and the high-yield corporate bond market has surged because the Fed pushed interest rates so low, when you can borrow money at 5 to 6% for fracking instead of 10%, you know what that does to your profits and your ability to expand? Companies, 40% of the earnings of the S&P 500 has come from companies buying back their own stocks with cheap money. When governments monkey with the economy and push interest rates down, especially with higher yield and riskier investments, it just causes bubbles and malinvestments. And you've got to wash all this bad stuff out. This fracking industry, people don't get it yet. The stock market ought to be crashing already. Fracking is done. This was supposed to save the U.S., make us energy dependent. It's created a lot of the net jobs in this country, a million-plus jobs in this one industry. And it is done. It ain't never going to happen again. It's high-cost oil that only survives when oil prices are higher cost than average.
0: We've been primarily talking about private investors. Harry, let's shift our focus to the business leaders, because in your book you talk about business strategies for the winter season as you call it that we're in so share with our audience some of the business strategies they should be employing at this time
1: well you know what happens Whether the fall season is what we call the bubble boom season you got falling interest rate new technologies i mean killer apps like cars in the roaring 20s and tractors and you know electrical appliances and now you know you got internet and broadband and personal computers and smartphones and cell phones and all this sort of stuff Business expands and there's a lot of innovation, a lot of new business models. Well, in the winter season, we're going to shake that down to the survival of fittest. Okay, we let a 1,000 lights bloom. Okay, now we're going to take the 10 leaders in an industry and consolidate them down to the three that are fit to survive and have the best products and the most loyal customers and the lowest cost and all this sort of stuff, the best innovation. And we're going to shift market share to them so they can keep bringing prices down. So it's a survival of the fittest. It's like most businesses are going to be in trouble or go under or be acquired in the next several years. But the businesses that do see this coming, do hunker down, do focus in the markets they're strongest and it can dominate. Because if you don't dominate a market, if you're not the low-cost leader or the high-quality leader or something, it's going to be ripped away from you. And that's what happened in the 30s. We had not just record bank failures. We had record bankruptcies of companies, you know, large and small, especially small. So you've got to say, How do I survive this? Because in any industry, some companies are going to survive. And then what we say is the secret, just like the people who are in cash when everything crashes and their money's suddenly worth, you know, five, ten times more overnight and cash is king. Well, in companies, it's like, hey, If you're focused and if you hunker down, you're going to survive and your competitor is going to fall and your market share long-term is going to be much higher and much more sustainable, and you're going to get payoffs not for years, for decades. The companies that survived the Great Depression led their industries for decades, like General Motors and General Electric on a large scene. So that's what we tell business. Chapter 8 is all about how do you identify where you're strong, how do you look at your fixed costs and variable costs, how do you cut costs, how do you hunker down how do you focus and how do you ensure? I tell people, if you just see this coming, because your competitors won't, if you just see it coming, even if you're not the leader in your sector industry, you ought to be able to reformulate your business and redesign it so you're guaranteed to survive. And then, you know, the world's going to fall on, the ocean's going to fall on you because <laughs> who wouldn't do better in your business sector if it was three competitors instead of 10? Who wouldn't do better out of those three? You're going to do way better.
0: You talk about the new network model for business. What's that all about?
1: I always use the stock exchange as a living example today. It's all electronic. It is a bottoms-up network. You ring the bell 9.30 in the morning. The users drive it. Nobody's managing this thing. The users buy, sell, blah, blah, blah. Everything's instantly recorded. Everybody knows what they made or lost. All this stuff happens. Zillions of things happen with no management. And then you ring the bell at 4 o'clock and it stops. Companies are becoming more that way where they can focus on the customer, not on the back line logistics. They, they can operate and make decisions on the front lines and on bottoms up, not top down. This is so much more efficient when you don't have to have all this management, all these layers and you can deal more directly with the customer and measure everything. I mean, direct response marketing is what my company does and the best companies I know. We deal with our newsletter subscribers and customers directly. We know what they buy, what they like, what they don't like, whether they buy this or that, whether they buy again and how often. I mean, this is much more efficient than having to decide stuff from the top, plan out in the future, guess how much people might buy a year from now. So it's a whole new model that is actually more powerful than just the PC and internet revolution these things allow this but when you can reorganize how companies manage and how workers work and deal with customers and products that's the big payoff that's why you see a technology revolution like the assembly line and autos and stuff and tractors and stuff in the early 1900s but the real payoff came after world war ii and that boom where all that stuff went mainstream and companies were totally different and so That's what helps drive the recovery, a whole new business model, a network model. But to get from here to there, a lot of companies have to go under that don't get it. Not only they may not have the right products or they may not be their cost leader or something, but the companies that have more of this network model are going to be able to survive. General Motors beat Ford in the Great Depression after Ford absolutely kicked their butts in the roaring 20s and the boom because they had the superior new corporate model of that. Day from Alfred Sloan. And so we think this network model is one of the most important things business people need to understand, because it's inevitable. We're going to have a network economy. We already communicate now in networks through the internet and very bottoms up. When our companies operate like that, because our companies are just streamlined bureaucracies, they're still top-down. Everybody hates supervisors. Everybody hates their managers nine out of ten times. Management's the problem. Computers should do the measuring in the management. People should make decisions for their customers and be rewarded for that, not whether... Their manager likes them or not.
0: The one thing that Harry's most optimistic about is what?
1: Well, but we know from our study, the winter season, like the 30s and early 40s, it's the most challenging season, but it's also the most powerful. It makes the most radical shifts in a shorter period of time brings efficiency on top of innovation before it and creates a better future. So I'm optimistic. I'm just trying to warn people, look, I didn't cause this damn thing. I didn't create these bubbles. I'm not trying to stop it with phony money, funny economics. I'm just warning you, we're going to have this reset. We have it every time. Every bubble ends in a reset. The reset's going to be difficult. If you see it coming, you can prosper rather than get annihilated. But I tell people, this reset is going to kill the education bubble, which is killing the middle class because nobody can afford anymore. And, that's, and if you do, you got to go in the student loan. It's going to kill the health care bubble that's going up almost as fast as education. It's going to make housing more affordable for young families. It's going to create better jobs and corporate organizations. There's going to be nothing but good come out of this, but it's going to be difficult first. There's going to be pain before the game.
0: One thing you're concerned about then?
1: I'm concern that governments are just denying it. Governments and investors and economists are in denial. They just think, well, we'll just keep printing money. This is exactly, it's not a little like, it's exactly like taking more of a drug to keep from coming down, as I said earlier. This never turns out well. The longer we do this stimulus thing, we've already done it for six years now, which has never happened at this scale. The worse the reset's going to be because you create more imbalances, more misinvestment. This whole fracking thing was a huge misinvestment. It shouldn't have happened. It happened. Now we've got to wash that whole thing out, and all those companies got to go bankrupt, and all those people got to be laid off, and all those loans got to default. If we hadn't have done it in the first place, yes, our economy wouldn't be quite as strong for years, but we wouldn't have to have as big a reset. So that's my biggest fear, that we have stretched this thing so far that this reset is going to have to be more difficult than it would have been if we'd have just gone through it from 2008 to say 2011 and let it happen.
0: We talked about in your introduction that you have a newsletter. So if people want to subscribe to that or get more information about Harry Dent and the predictions you're making about the economy, where should they go?
1: It's high content. It's a way to get to know us. You can kind of basically flirt with us. We can date until you decide, Maybe we got something to say. You need to get more in depth. It's very simple. You just go to harrydent.com, put in your email, and you're on this free newsletter.
0: Great. Is there one question, Harry, I should have asked you today that I haven't?
1: You know, I tell you, the only thing I would add, in one of the best predictions I ever made that I wasn't that known for, 1988-89, we said Japan's going to go down in the 90s, big crash, while the rest of the world booms, especially U.S. and Europe. And people thought we were crazy. We could see the demographic slide in Japan. Japan was the first major country to go off the cliff with its baby boom spending, way ahead of everybody else. Well, then, of course, the U.S. was next, and we predicted that 20-some years ago, that 2007 was likely to be the peak year for the economy before we go into headwinds. Germany and most of Europe, but especially Germany. Germany's got the worst demographic spending chart for the next seven, eight years, and everybody thinks Germany's going to save Europe. We said it last year Germany's going to underperform in 2014. They have. They're going to underperform more as we go ahead. If Germany sinks into a deep recession, and I don't see any way they can't, with world trade slowing and their own demographics, the worst in the next eight years of any major country in the world, then Europe is in real trouble, and they're in trouble already. So I think the Germany factor is another thing. And we also stress to people, of all the bubbles in the world, especially real estate, but the whole economy overbuilding, China's central top down, which is the wrong model, by the way, in a network world, is basically overbuilding everything from industrial and capacity to infrastructures to housing 27 percent of houses are empty and they're owned by chinese investors they're not just sitting there unsold chinese buy these condos at high prices and don't even rent them out because there's nobody to rent them to that bubble is the biggest in modern history because it was so government driven so overdone that when it burst china's going to go down like an elephant so the two big surprises in the next five to six years is going to be the fall of germany and the China bubble bursting. And very few economists see either of those happening.
0: Harry, thanks for being on our program.
1: Sure. Enjoyed it again, Jim.
0: This or the BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at biztalkradioshow.com, or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040. If you want to learn the strategies on finding and getting performance out of A player salespeople, contact Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net.